Hey, it's Matt. Coming up, a really interesting discussion about a question that involves ethics, democracy, and personal conscience, and how it's all getting more and more scrambled in the age of Trump. Before we get to that, a big thank you to the folks who have been following the show and hitting play on the episodes and going on the Apple Podcast app to leave us ratings and reviews. And if you want to help us out a bit more right now and in under 30 seconds, here's something else you can do. In the Apple Podcast app or Spotify or wherever you listen, go to the Beyond Politics show and up at the top you should see three dots and an option if you tap it to share the show. And then if you could just share it in a text or an email with a friend or a family member, ask them to follow the show. Hearing a recommendation from a friend is still the best way for people to discover shows. It helps us grow, helps us get more great guests, and it helps us have more interesting conversations like this one. So thanks again, and here it is. What do you do if you disagree with your boss when your boss is one of the most powerful people in the world? Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. This is a question that has come up in spades recently as 17 current Biden campaign staffers publicly wrote a letter to the president disagreeing with his position on the war in Gaza that follows a letter anonymously sent by over 500 staffers back in November on the same theme. There's no one better on earth. I mean that sincerely to talk about this with than Jim Papa. Jim Papa is not only a longtime congressional staffer, political operative, communications expert, and guru trusted by Fortune 500 companies and political campaigns around the world. He's also the host of the podcast Staffer. Jim Papa, um, it's like this is the role you were born to play, man. Matt, that is a very kind introduction, and I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me today. I'm really glad to be here talking with you about this. It's been topic. too long since we did this. I think we last had you on. Might be a couple of years ago. Yes, um, that is right. And you've gone on to great success with your show Staffer, which for total, I mean, it's not just for nerds. It's like <laughs> beer. It's not just for breakfast anymore. It's like Staffer is not just for insider nerds, but it's particularly delightful for insider nerds like me who are like, oh, we think of staffers as super important. And actually, that's a good jumping off point for what we're going to talk about, because it's no joke that staffers play an extremely important role. And this isn't just me kind of puffing up my old former career or your old former career. I mean, smart political leaders rely on the experts that they bring in, the team that they bring in to help them do the incredibly hard work that they have to do, especially in government. We know how vital that role is and how influential staffers can be. But at the same time, we're staffers, right? We are, no one voted for us for anything. And you used to lead meetings of staffers on behalf of Rahm Emanuel, your old boss. We were a bunch of hotshot chiefs of staff for newly elected members of Congress. And you'd say that all the time. It's like, hey, no one elected us to anything. So we can advise, we can give opinions, we can lend expertise, but it's not our name on the door at the end of the day. What was your reaction when you saw the, these letters? Yeah. So. You know, as you said, I worked in the Obama White House from 2009 to 2012, and I worked on Capitol Hill for a dozen years before that. So I bring that experience to bear here. I have deep affection for our country and our system of self-governance, despite its deep flaws and its need for reforms and much greater participation and involvement on an equitable basis for all types of people that make up this great country of ours. And I am keenly interested in preserving things that I think are critical 
to this great endeavor we call our own self-governance. And one of those things that I think is essential is what you just mentioned, which is this relationship between staffers and policymakers, the principals themselves. I just wanted to share that context because, yes, I bring that experience to this conversation. I also know I'm a 50-year-old white guy, and I have, so I know that I should be humble, right? And I have respect for other people who have, who may engage in this conversation with a different point of view or reach a different conclusion, as long as they're hearing me with a sense of good faith, right? That we are, that we're trying to figure out this gray area between staffer and citizen. These are, right? They are- right. You're not telling anyone to shut up here, right? You're not trying to shut down anyone who feels to a need to raise their voice. You're not trying. I get the context. I know some 50-year-old white dudes. I've met some before. (laughs) I I know. Uh, They're great. I mean, they're they're really hot. They're super awesome. uh, Yeah. You might say that's my demographic. So no, but I get where you're coming from. That's an important caveat because this could easily be like old man shakes fist at cloud. Yes. Shut up, you young idealist. That's right. That's right. And I'll be honest. And I saw, so not only did I see some of the things that you referenced and there were some others, I also saw some of the response to that. And it did strike me. And again, this is all abbreviated down to a quote in a story. And it seemed a little like fist shaking, grumpy old man. And I think it's a much more complex, nuanced conversation. Like I want, and you want, and I think your listeners want people to be so engaged in the future of this country that we find as many ways as possible to encourage our policymakers to find the right solutions. And I would never suggest that someone, by choosing to become a staffer, that they give up their citizenship card, right, or their voice as a citizen, because they do not. I would love, and I think I actually believe, that some of the most passionate citizens become staffers. That's why we get into this, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's why we get into it. Just just for a background piece, just so people understand the context. When I worked on Capitol Hill, which was about the vintage that you did, I mean, I started on Capitol Hill and I was making $27,000 a year. And I did it because I super wanted to do it. I wanted the foot in the door. I listen, I, I was fresh out of like hot shit. I went to Harvard. I went to the Kennedy School. And like, I took the job because I wanted the opportunity to work in Congress. And I knew for real, I was never going to get elected to Congress. Okay. No one's electing this guy to Congress. And it's- I'd vote for you, Matt. Well, thanks, man. I'd vote for you. (laughs) But it's like in the movie Grease. It's like, if you can't be an athlete, be an athletic supporter. And for many of us, it's like, you're not going to be a member of Congress, but you want the ability to do things that matter and to be in the game. And it's not a game for us. That's the thing is, it's not a game. That's right. And also, so I just talked a little bit about what it means to be a citizen, but well, let's also describe and discuss what does it mean to be a staffer? And I think there is something that is obvious, but not always discussed. And that is, it is an incredible privilege to be a staffer, right? It is a privileged position to be in. So not only is it like competitive and is it an honor to serve in those, but you, by the nature of being a staffer, are making it into some rarefied air when it comes to shaping decisions made by our country, certainly as it comes to 
shaping the thoughts, views, positions of the person that you work for. So that's an immense amount of responsibility and privilege. And you were actually chosen because of your passion and your integrity and your values and your smarts, your judgment, your analysis, et cetera. So all, you don't leave those at the door when you become a staffer. Just the opposite. You bring all those qualities in through the door to become a great staffer. Again, there are tensions here, but these are this is not a, a bright letter rule that says when you become a staffer, you lose your voice. You don't. I happen to believe you can still participate in marches if you want to. You can sign letters if you want to, petitions. Like, again, you are still a citizen. Where I think the equity that I think deserves some discussion here is when a staff member decides as a form of protest to prominently display their own, I'll call it stafferhood, and say, I am a staffer who knows a lot of stuff about government, and therefore my voice as a citizen should be given some extra weight. When that happens, and it is given extra weight, the only reason we know about these letters, Matt, is because they came from staffers. They were The media treated them as extra newsworthy. They gave them extra weight. What does that do to this dynamic where they say they sign a letter and send a letter on Monday and on Tuesday, they need to go back into a meeting with the boss that they are advising and other senior staff who they whose opinions they are trying to shape. What does it do to that dynamic of trust? And I fear that it erodes the bond of trust that staff and policymakers need to have with each other to have candid conversations uncomfortable conversations, heated conversations, but truthful, honest dialogue where they can make mistakes. They can say things that they need to revisit later. They can learn things they didn't know before, right? But those, they're private for a reason so that you can have all those qualities that I just said about being uncomfortable and heated. You can have them and they can progress because of that trust. I'm going to take a stronger line on this, I think, than you are. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Because I think you're being philosophical. And look, when you were on Capitol Hill, you were sort of, you were a guru for the rest of us, right? Like you were sort of, it's weird because you worked for Rahm Emanuel, who was famously profane and brusque. And yet somehow you were sort of, somewhere between therapist and emotional support monkey for those of us who are in impossible jobs, like trying to, you know, get these newly elected members of Congress reelected. They're running around. They're like toddlers. Okay. They're tripping over themselves. They're screwing up politically every five seconds. They're going to burst into flames. And I would call you up and I'd be like, Jim, oh my gosh, my boss. Actually, I co-host a podcast with my former boss, so I shouldn't say all this, but I'm going to. My boss just said something insane to the press. Oh my gosh, I just, I, you'll tell me how to clean this up in a few minutes, but first, can I just give, give me a drink and walk me, <laughs> help, help, hold my hand, hold my, so look, you're being very sympathetic. I think this is wrong. I think it is, it is not supportable in any way. You don't give up your free speech rights as a citizen when you become a staffer, but take that shit to some other organization. Don't sign it as, I am a Joe Biden presidential appointee, and I disagree I with the boss on this policy. Don't invoke that. 
I will give you an example. One of my first jobs on Capitol Hill, I worked for Mike Michaud, member of Congress, Maine Second Congressional District. He was, at the time, identified as a pro-life Democrat. That's a dodo. It's extinct. It doesn't exist anymore. And when I was considering taking this job, I had deep conversations with friends on Capitol Hill. Can I do, this runs afoul of my values. I am pro-choice. I believe in this as a moral matter. What I decided was, you know what? I'm not coming into this with an agenda to undermine his position because he's been elected. I'm going to, over time, talk to him and I'm going to try to pro provide him like a set of views. I bring in the NARAL people. I bring, that's not called NARAL anymore. I bring in the pro-choice folks. I give him a wide set of views. I would give him inputs. And you know what happened? Over time, he evolved his position. And that's, yep. that's a proper role for a staffer. But if I had gone out and every time he voted in a pro-life direction, I had written a public letter saying, my boss has taken a morally unfit position he should have fired my ass. Well, I, I agree with you. Well, this is where I think we're actually in agreement. It's the invocation of I am a staffer or my boss did the following that I have a major objection to. Yeah. If let's say you happen to work for a member who voted for the Iraq war and you wanted to participate in a rally on the mall two weeks later against the Iraq war, I would actually say you could do that. Right. In, in my opinion, you haven't you have not completely given up your voice as a citizen. I wouldn't go out there and say I, as a staffer, am here protesting the votes of my boss and other policy. Right. Like it's not it's the invocation of your role as a staffer that I believe shouldn't be leveraged. And every every anyone who disagrees with me on either side, in either direction on this, I would say you it's a calibration of risk because if you're at that rally and a reporter comes up and you give your name and title and what have you well then you've just invoked potentially the very thing that you weren't trying to so there is risk there and I'll, I'll just close with this the other thing that i think is completely on the table in the one exception where you want to invoke your role as a staffer is if you resign Right. So it, right. That is a form of protest that many have taken over the over the course of our history. Right. Many have said, I can no longer support this policy on moral grounds or on grounds of wisdom. I am therefore resigning. That's fair. And again, I'm going to go further than you because I don't maintain the network of relationships on Capitol Hill that you surely do. So when you direct people to listen to this episode, Refer them to your views, not mine. But <laughs> am I going too far? I'm not sure this is a question, okay? It's just so I'm not ranting. Would it be going too far to say that the route these staffers took is the chicken shit route? Because if you really have the courage of your convictions, resign your job. Do something that, you know, look, I can't support this, so I'm going to take a personal hit here. I'm going to stand up for my morals. But saying, look, I'm going to take the money. I'm going to because all the money you get paid as a staffer. I'm going to I'm going to take the position. I'm not going to give anything up for this. I'm just going to criticize. I'm going to keep working for you and I'm going to tell you that you are doing cuz this is Oh no, I matter, okay. Yeah. Let me just jump in. I yeah. just to say how much I agree with the anonymous letter of staffers. Right. That is worst of the worst. 
because it absolutely corrodes like the trust. So if you're the policymaker, you're looking at this list of anonymous 200 staffers and thinking to yourself, who am I? I'm having right. a meeting to discuss this topic. Who am I talking with tomorrow? Am I talking with these really deeply informed, passionate staffers who are trying to help me navigate this? Or am I am I talking to some subset of protesters who are going to take this conversation externally when it's not yet fully baked? Or if we come to a disagreement, right, where we can respect each other, but we come to a different conclusion? Is my just different conclusion about to be held against me by the very people I'm relying on for advice? That is so corrosive to the system. And it is, to your point, also, I think, on the part of the anonymous letter signers, I think it's self-interested because you want you want to keep the privilege, right? Right. You want, right. You want to keep your privilege of being in the room and having the accolades that may come from that, the influence, the the salary, what have you. You want to keep all that, but not put your name and reputation on the line for this thing that you believe in. That, and it's too corrosive for the system. It's, it is, although I want to twist the knife into both of us just a little bit because we've had two kind of disparate cases during the Trump administration that, I don't know, sort of challenge all of this. I'm going to throw them both at you at once. One is the John Kelly example. Kelly is Trump's chief of staff. He sees things that he thinks are wrong, dangerous. And we all know how that relationship went way downhill. And yet he resigns as chief of staff, or maybe he was fired. What's the difference? And he says he's not going to say anything about his experience there, even though the world is clamoring for it. He's not going to speak out despite the threats to America that he thinks he saw because he, quote, owes the president his silence. So that's one thing I could... Actually, no, I'm not going to throw two at you. Let me just throw that one at you. What do you make of that as the guru to all staffers? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Well, number one, some of the things that John Kelly describes uh, as having seen now years later are not just policy disagreements, right? We are not talking about things that are excruciating to debate and obviously very difficult policy questions. That is not what he described seeing. So I do not agree with him that he owes the president, quote unquote, silence. I can, where I want to be sympathetic to him is he was trying to explore this gray area of right. what it means, right, to be an honorable person in a system that is reaching some conclusions that you don't support. And I believe he was trying to make a decision that he thought was the best interest in the best interest of the country. I, I, in my podcast, I got to interview Tim Miller, former spokesperson for Jeb Bush. He wrote a really interesting book about people who served in the Trump administration who had previous to his election, just trashed him like up one side, down the other, thought he was absolutely awful. How did they rationalize coming to work for him? And one of the things was well, if I don't take this job, somebody worse will take it. That is a danger. That rationalization, while I understand it, and it's not never wrong. Yeah. It's not never right, rather. So sometimes that is right. It is a rationalization that can pull some people into these positions of privilege where it is pretty nice to be when they might otherwise perhaps be better off listening to that 
other, the other angel on the other shoulder and just say, you know what, I'm going to take my voice as a citizen and exercise it from the outside. I completely agree because I, just to go back to my own kind of selfish analogy and my own experience, if I didn't think that I could agree with enough of Mike Michaud's program, which I did, I agreed with 98% of it, abortion's a big deal. If I didn't think I could largely agree with him and on this one issue where I did have a profound and moral disagreement, I didn't think, look, I can do something positive here and it's real and I can do it in a way that doesn't hurt my kind of moral position. I shouldn't have taken the job. And I'd say the same thing for all of those folks. And this becomes especially hard when you think about the other circumstance, which is Sarah Longwell has documented in the bulwark seven former cabinet level appointees or senior White House staffers who have now come out and, as you said, trashed Donald Trump in vehement terms after the fact, right? And you can ask yourself, first of all, what's the difference between what they're doing and what John Kelly was doing? But also, what about the case of the this cabal within the Trump administration that would surreptitiously remove memos from his desk or make sure he didn't see the information? I want to press you on this because this is more nuanced, I think, than it's really been discussed in the press. I think we all do a version of this, right? And so there was a lot of, when this story came out, there was a lot of pearl clutching about, oh no, he's the president. You can't do that. And I agree that there was maybe some line crossing there, like removing memos from the president's desk feels maybe a little far. On the other hand, would you agree that one of the things we do as staffers is we shape information? You know, we make choices all the time about what's critical. Like your boss, like if you're working on Capitol Hill, your boss has a very limited amount of time. They're about to go vote on something. She's saying, Jim, what do I do? It's you don't have time to give the book. You've got to make some critical decisions there. You make these choices all the time. So it's not totally nuts to me that people might say, well, if I give my boss this piece of paper, he's going to do something disastrous. I'm just not going to yeah. look. How do you resolve that? So, well, first, I mean, that that is part of being a staffer is having the judgment to present the information to your boss that is going to help them do the best job. Right. And generally speaking, good staff work is not trying to railroad them into an outcome. That right, is bad staff right. work. Right? Right, right, right. Railroading them by shielding information from them, only exposing them to things that support my point of view, that is bad staff work. Now, Trump is such an outlier, right? I mean, like people, yeah. they were pulling things from his desk. They were genuinely afraid. For he might bomb Mexico. National security. Is, <laughs> That's right. There right. were some really scary things. But I want to return to something, just your Mike Mishoot example. There's not a single staffer who agrees with their boss 100% of the time. That would be impossible. Right. Every staffer has to deal with the fact that they're working with someone who they overwhelmingly agree with, but has some things that they disagree with. The reason why being a staff member is not just a powerful position, but also a privilege is that you have the ability to be in the room and have these conversations day after day. And you just, you have to be okay with, you win some, you lose some. Right, right. right. Sometimes That's you the, can the toss, sometimes you don't, sometimes the rest of the senior team agrees with you, sometimes they don't. You have to keep going for the good of the system. 
And so just to tie it back to this, like the public expressions that invoke one's stafferhood as extra weight to one's point of view, that's where it corrodes the system. Because then the back and forth, the I will continue this process, I will continue to weigh in as someone inside the room, if policymakers and other staff members can't have a rich and informed, passionate debate on an ongoing basis with someone because they think at any moment they may go outside and begin right. right protesting, that's not good for our democracy. And so I would just say there are options for you if you get to that place where you can't work for the member, for the organization, you have options. It may require you to not be in the staffer role that you're in and use other tools of advocacy. I think I'm glad you kind of landed there. And I know we got to get you out of here because you are one of the most in-demand professionals in Washington, D.C. But I think that really is the critical point, because at first, when we were talking about this, I'm like, I'm wondering if we're maybe being a little too philosophical about this in terms of the corrosive effect of these kinds of things on democracy. But I think that is the key point, ultimately, is neither of us want to oversell the role that staffers have. But it's, again, these are the people who have been elected within our republic, and we respect that more than anything else. I think what we're also saying, though, is that support from a team and our belief in expertise and elected officials being able to lean on expertise to do their job effectively is so critical. And it's what people want. It's what we should want in a democracy like this. And if you don't have it and when you start to degrade that, then things really do fall apart. So agree with you. I, if I've offended any of my former colleagues here, I'm sorry. I'm being a little harsh. <laughs> no, look, I don't think I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. And I think we've just scratched the surface, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a we, lot more. We invited, if we invited 10 more people to have this conversation, we would have 10 more shades of nuance here and different, different ways, different lenses to see it through. So I appreciate your, your having me on to talk about it. Well, let's do this. If any former or current staffers are out there and you disagree with anything I said or anything Jim said, more likely you're going to disagree with me. Come on to the show. We'll talk about it. I'll hear you out. Um, you can convince me I'm wrong. I probably am. All right. Hey, for Jim Papa, I hope people will check out the Staffer podcast. It's really interesting. It is in the weeds in the best possible way. Uh, and Jim, thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you, Matt.